My name is Colin Palmer. I'm the acting director of the program in African American Studies here at Princeton. And um, as a bureaucrat, or at least part-time bureaucrat, one doesn't really have moments that one enjoys. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is a particularly uh, joyous occasion. And so I am very pleased to welcome so many of you who have traveled so far to help us uh, celebrate the work of uh, Claudia Tate. The, the idea, incidentally, is that the program um, will sponsor a series of uh, events, a series of um, workshops uh, on the work of distinguished African-American scholars. This is the first of that ongoing series. And I might add that it's the brainchild of Professor Nell Painter. And um, we hope that some of you in the audience today will have your work studied at some point in the future. But we think um, African-American scholars really seldom celebrate the work of other scholars, and we need to begin this process. And we need to indicate to the scholarly communities across this country that the study of the peoples of African descent in all of its varied forms constitute serious enterprises, and there are enormous works of distinction out there, and there are scholars of international stature. Um, I know I'm speaking to the choir, um, but these things need to be stated and stated over and over again. We need to celebrate our scholarship. We need to take pride in it. And we need to find ways to enhance it. And we can't stop there. We obviously have to work to transform the academic <coughs> endeavors uh, in which we are all engaged. The work continues. Um, Claudia Tate is not um, with us at the moment. She will arrive shortly. And, um, but I would certainly, I won't be on the podium at that point, but I want to say so for the record that we want to extend to her and to her family a very warm and affectionate welcome. Claudia, as some of you know, was the former director of this program. Um, and would have continued to do wonderful things for it had circumstances not intervened. Um, the, <clears throat> this symposium was actually, as I said, conceived by Nell Painter, but organized by the Associate Director of African American Studies, um, Professor Noliwe Rooks, and I want to thank her, and I want to I want to thank Gene Washington as well, our program manager, who has a special talent for putting these kinds of things on. Um, James Wilson, our pre-doctoral fellow, and Miss Sepa Masango, um, one of our students. So we're very grateful. Um, if 
finally, and this will be done by each of the chairs this afternoon, but I do want to welcome all of the participants in the program. I want to put my own special touch on this, and I thank you very much for coming, and I look forward to hearing all of you later this afternoon. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Valerie Smith, and I'm a professor of English and African American Studies here at Princeton, and I'm delighted to uh, be able to um, chair this first panel and to welcome you all here this afternoon. Um, it's a special joy for me to be able to participate in this opportunity to celebrate the work of Claudia Tate. The distinguished speakers on this panel have chosen to focus on the impact and suggestiveness of Claudia Tate's early work on their thinking, and in so doing, they call our attention to the range, versatility, and innovativeness that characterize Claudia Tate's scholarship. While her later work broke theoretical ground by opening up spaces for talking about the interconnections between discourses of race and psychoanalysis, and between discourses or and between political ideologies and narrative form, Claudia Tate's early work was committed to making the texts and the work of black women writers available to scholarly and general readers alike. Her first book, Black Women Writers at Work, introduced to a wide readership the ideas, texts, and writing lives of a broad range of writers such as Tony Kate Bambara, Kristen Hunter, Gail Jones, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, Entezaki Shange, Alice Walker, and Shirley Ann Williams, to name only a few. Her probing, provocative, and insightful questions set a new standard for the interview as a genre and mapped new directions for critical and theoretical writing about African-American women. As Tilly Olson writes in her foreword to the book, this collection transcends its genre. It becomes a harbinger book, a book of revelation, of haunting challenge, opening on to central concerns not only of writing, but of life, of living today. Likewise, Claudia Tate's scholarly editions of the works of Georgia Douglas Johnson and of Catherine Tillman feature nuanced, meticulously researched, and illuminating introductions that helps to establish the place of these writers in the interlocking traditions of African-American women's and U.S. literature. It gives me very great pleasure to introduce to you two scholars who really need no introduction at all. Professors Hazel Carby and Andrew Seale are responsible for some of the most exciting and influential work currently being produced in the fields of literary, African-American, feminist, and cultural studies today. So we are thrilled to have both of them taking part in today's event. Uh, I'm going to introduce each of them briefly now. They'll deliver their remarks and then take questions together from the audience after both presentations are completed. Hazel Carby is Professor of American Studies and African American Studies and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Yale University. She's the author of landmark essays such as It Just Bees That Way Sometime, The Sexual Politics of Women's Blues, Ideologies of Black Folk, The Historical Novel of Slavery, Policing the Black Woman's Body in an Urban Context, The Multicultural Wars, and Encoding White Resentment, Grand Canyon, A Narrative for Our Times, to name only a few. But Hazel Carby is perhaps best known for her three books, Reconstruction, Reconstructing Womanhood, The Emergence of the Afro-American Woman Novelist, Race Men, and The Cultures of Babylon. 
the editor of the magazine novels of Pauline Hopkins and co-editor with Paul Gilroy of The Empire Strikes Back, Race and Racism in 70s Britain. She is at present working on a history of the lives of radical black women in the 1930s and 40s, and also at, well, she's at work on a critical analysis of the, writing, of the writings of Octavia Butler. Andrew Seale is the William R. Keenan Professor of the Humanities, Chair of the African American Studies Program, and Director of the Center for African American Studies at Wesleyan University. She's an acclaimed and widely published poet and scholar. Her essays include Blues Notes on Black, I'm sorry, Blues Notes on Black Sexuality, Sex and the Texts of Jesse Fawcett and Nella Larson, Dies and Dolls, Multicultural Barbie and the Merchandising of Difference, The Occult of True Womanhood, Critical Demeanor and Black Feminist Studies, and The Shirley Temple of My Familiar. Let me just say that I took this time to um, mention the article titles of both Professors Carby and Ducille because not only do they reflect the range of their um, intellectual work, but also their playful side, their senses of humor. And um, so I just wanted to sort of get a couple of laughs in here um, from the titles. Um, she is the author as well of two books, The Coupling Convention, Sex, Text, and Tradition in Black Women's Fictions, and also Skin Trade, which won the 1997 Myers Center Award for the Study of Human Rights. At present, she's at work on a novel, an anthology of black feminist criticism, and two scholarly books, Inconspicuous Consumption, Labor, Leisure, and Black Middle Class Culture, and Technical Color, Race, and the Popular Imagination. Please join me in welcoming Hazel Carby and Andrew Seale. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> when I was invited to present at this symposium, I accepted with great enthusiasm. For occasions when we can gather together as critics and as feminist critics and engage with the work of a black female intellectual as the main focus of our attention, to celebrate one of our own, as it were, have been few and far between. In particular, the chance to publicly engage and celebrate the work of Claudia Tate was particularly attractive to me. Claudia's contributions to literary and cultural criticism have been important and original in so many public ways. But I also want to signal at the outset that her intellectual presence in the academy is of great personal significance to me. The body of Claudia's work is so substantial, conceptually complex and varied, that when I sat down to write, my excitement vanished, to be replaced by anxiety. If I had 20 minutes, which essays or books or issues or themes should I or could I select? After all, Claudia brought an understanding of the working lives of black women writers to my desk and into my consciousness. She made me stop short and ask myself why I had avoided or neglected to discuss in my own writing the crucially important issues of narrative pleasure 
and desire. And she made me realize how careless my own readings were when I found the novels of black women in the post-Reconstruction era opaque. Opaque, that is, when I was not finding them downright indigestible. And I remember my first encounter with this statement. For a decade, black women writers of the post-Reconstruction era affirmed in novels their belief that virtuous women like themselves could reform society by domesticating it. Claudia's argument in domestic allegories of political desire was a revelation and a gift. It helped me to read differently. Claudia is also a nonconformist, and I have always identified with and taken great pleasure in her acts of critical rebellion, which are numerous. She breaks down barriers of critical parochialism and safety. She challenges the limits of conventional paradigms and refuses to bend beneath the shibboleths of the field. In fact, Claudia is a perfect fit for my favorite split infinitive, to boldly go where no woman has gone before. First, she has been an intellectual leader in the detailed excavation of texts that have been too long ignored by the American critical establishment. Well, ignored is a very polite way of putting it. While canons of African-American fiction have been slowly and methodically built, Claudia's canons have been wheeled into the arena, fused and discharged. After the dust has cleared, we've all been able to see that these traditions were built by denying the validity of the texts which did not fit the paradigm being used. Claudia has been irresistibly drawn, it seems, to the text that no one wants to talk about. A tenacious and meticulous researcher, in addition to being an innovative close reader, she is also something of a magician. We think that the swords drawn through the box on stage are going to draw blood, but she inevitably shows us that there is nothing to fear from, but much to learn by confronting whatever, post-reconstruction fiction, W.E.B. Du Bois's Dark Princess, Zora Neale Hurston's Seraph on the Suwannee, or Richard Wright's Savage Holiday, for example. I've also felt, from the earliest of Claudia's essays, that we shared a mission that we were both desperate to deparochialize departments of English and to destroy forever the narrow ethnic definitions within which traditions of English literature have been reproduced in the academy. In this task, as in all her work, Claudia has always refused reductive visions seeking instead to articulate the complexly different black voices that speak to a general or universal human condition. 
The interaction of race and gender in the work of black women, for example, is for Claudia a site of the increased breadth of vision rather than a cause of narrowing our focus, as many of our English department critics mistakenly claim. With this breadth of vision, Claudia has an acute understanding and analysis of particularity and always emphasizes and delineates location, whether that location be geographic or a state of mind. I have always admired and deeply respected Claudia's continuing insistence on this broad vision of humanity and her absolute refusal to engage in reductive or essentialized perspectives. We both find the theoretical perspectives of Antonio Gramsci invaluable, and I've never had to hide my Althusserian tendencies from Claudia. However, I haven't trodden the path into psychoanalysis with her, though I continue to learn from her insights and recommend all of them to my students, for this work is central for young scholars in the field. When loud voices condemned psychoanalysis as a white thing that had absolutely nothing to say to us, Claudia ignored them and proved them wrong. For my students, I find it invaluable to be able to place Claudia's work in a tradition of the psycho psychological analysis of race and identity that includes Franz Fanon and Richard Wright. It turned out then to be so easy to identify why I am intellectually indebted to Claudia. And yet my anxiety remains, indeed deepens. I eventually came to realize during the process of writing that this anxiety did not ultimately reside in the dilemma that trying to do justice to Claudia's work in 20 minutes would be a daunting task for anyone. I knew that there would be many voices here this afternoon and that what is particularly wonderful about this occasion is precisely that it is a shared collective endeavor. My anxiety turns out to have its origins in a contradiction in facing what I am trying to avoid, in an intense reluctance to speak about, combined with a simultaneous sense of the absolute necessity of addressing what it has meant to be a black female critic in the academy for our generation. Graduate students and junior faculty when issuing invitations to their conferences now, have started to address me as, quote, a pioneer, or, quote, a foremother. <laughs> or they have utilized a vocabulary of other similar words or phrases that place me and my work in a generation that remains at a distinct, if discreet, distance from theirs. Though I have felt deeply disconcerted by such approaches, I thought that I would adopt this location 
for this occasion as a place from which to think about the question of a generation of black women scholars, a generation to which Claudia and I, and so many of us here this afternoon, belong. It seems that such positionality is now part of the field as its geography is changing. The place from which we speak needs to be considered historically, if for no other reason, then younger women are reconstituting their relation to us and our work through space and time. Though I understand this process, intellectually and theoretically, I must admit that it feels like our generation is being parked, as it were, as if on a shelf. The shelf is high, it's pretty high. It seems certainly that we're being revered. But speaking for myself, I'm not yet ready to be dusted off and placed in the closet with the rest of the trophies. The process of thinking about and writing this paper has meant having to grip my teeth and harness myself to what has felt like a roller coaster, riding a very rocky, a very rocky circuitous track of memory across the mountainous terrain in which I have located my professional self since I came to the United States more than 20 years ago. For many of us in that generation, black literature in general and black women's literature in particular was our subject. But I do not think it was our only or even our ultimate object of attainment. There are many varied routes that we took to arrive at our subject, but reflecting upon Claudia's work has led me to think about how so much of what we all did was part of a shared search for an intellectual history to which we could belong, a history into which we could insert our intellectual selves as black female critics, as thinking beings who could talk about so many things. We were trained as literary critics in the broadest sense of the term. But for many of us, we were employed in the narrowest terms possible. How Claudia's route and my route converged is for me a story of great personal significance, and I hope it is more generally instructive. When I first came to Yale as a visiting graduate student from the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham in England in 1980, I was leaving behind a very supportive, closely knit intellectual and friendship community and moving to a place where I did not know anyone and with a very uncertain future before me. Professor Charles Davis who had invited me to study with the faculty in the Afro-American Studies program and generously offered to mentor me himself, died before I arrived. When I was introduced to his protege, Professor Henry Louis Gates, he asked me at once why a nice young white woman was working on black women writers. Looking back on those early days, 
in what I came to understand was the Ivy League, I wish I had had Adrian Piper's artistic and political vision and ability and had designed and handed out discreet cards as aides in the negotiation of the minefields of North American racialized readings of the body, and in particular to help me counter the national tendency to reduce spheres of knowledge to particular bodies. It was very difficult trying to persuade professors on both sides of the Atlantic that the work of black women writers constituted a field that was intellectually substantial enough to warrant a dissertation. But then Professor Gates gave me Barbara Christian's Black Women Writers for my 32nd birthday. And the next thing that I knew was that I was being invited to teach the first course on African-American women at Yale. But while black women writers were becoming, in quote, hot commodities, end of quote, as critics, our entry into the field of African-American studies was simultaneously being located into a distinct hierarchy. Susan Willis, Ibina Busia, May Henderson and I slushed around with the water beetles in our shared basement offices and women's bathroom, <laughs> while the men walked the hallowed halls above ground and literally above our heads. I moved to my first real job at Wesleyan University, but I found myself very, very isolated from those I imagined to be my peers in our emerging field. I was told in person and in print that I could not know anything about my chosen field of knowledge or that I should not speak about black women writers in the USA because I was from Britain and or of West Indian heritage and or because I wasn't dark enough. Either way, I didn't have the right to do what I was doing. And as for the male critics, well, we all know how they felt that our feminism was washing dirty laundry in public and betraying black men. I may have been on an intellectual search, a search that so, so many of us shared, a search for a history of sisterhood, but sisterhood was not found in and did not support my daily intellectual existence. And this is where Claudia enters. Not only because of what she wrote and what I read, but because Claudia was the first black woman critic in the academy after I had been here for very many years, who took my work seriously enough to offer to read and to comment on drafts of my work. Claudia didn't just open up my mind through her publications. She opened up a pair of supportive arms, and through this gesture, I felt for the first time that I was being welcomed into a community that had shunned me, and remembering that she did this still has the power to make me want to cry. One way to tell the story of how we all got here from there 
is to structure it as a progressive narrative. Like a narrative of emergence into modernity, of increasing commercial success and recognition for the black women writers that we wrote about. A success that for many culminated in the award of the Nobel Prize for Literature to Toni Morrison. While celebrating Toni's tremendous and very well-deserved recognition, a friend said to me, doesn't it feel like we are all, as black women, walking up there with her? Well, I knew exactly what she meant, but no, as a literary and cultural critic, I actually didn't feel that I was walking in the hollows of Toni Morrison's footprints. Our story isn't the same as the story of those novelists and poets who have gained national and international fame and recognition. Our story is a story of black women critics who have been absolutely driven to give our all to build and maintain a field of knowledge, who have trained the next generation of young scholars, but who remain deep in the shadows of academe. It is trying to come to terms with and think about how to tell this latter story that makes me anxious. Because it is a story full of pain and frustration, a story which I believe is, to a large extent, still being told from the metaphorical basements, not only of African-American studies, but from the basements of English departments and literary studies in general. It is a story of a continuous and to-be-continued struggle, a battle that has wounded and permanently scarred many and left others exhausted and weary. And yet it is a story that I think needs to be told. And in conclusion, I offer a suggestion about how we might think about telling it. If we return for a moment to Claudia's first book, Black Women Writers at Work, does this not offer us a model for how we might tell the story of the conditions of our own work? For as I look around me and I see how we work, it seems that we are overwhelmingly responsible for the domestic labor of our profession, spending our lives in the academic kitchens and having more than our fair share of responsible for keeping academic house and training and nurturing the next generation, even though we are so few in number. Could we take the questions that Claudia asks about writing as work, about how our work shapes our life, about the distinctions between male and female critics, about being black and female in the academy, these are all questions that Claudia asks. Would we be willing and able and brave enough to pose these important questions to ourselves? Thank you.
Hazel has always been a tough act to follow. <laughs> I was just saying to Fran Foster a few minutes ago that um, it may be some aspect of the aging process that I find that I easily you know, can burst into tears over little things. And being here today, um, being in this company, is a big thing. So the real challenge um, is to see if I can stand here and speak without bawling. <laughs> Happily, thank you, <laughs> the amen corner. Happily taking one's cues from both Hazel Carby and Claudia Tate, and with apologies to Willa Cather, I have decided to title my remarks this afternoon, O Pioneers, Vision, Revision, and Black Women Scholars at Work. Brilliant, gracious, and criminally gorgeous, Professor Claudia Tate seems always to have been a woman at work. It is impossible to talk about African-American literary and cultural studies, not to mention black feminist criticism and theory, without talking about Claudia Tate. For these are fields that she has helped to define and develop since the 1970s through publication of several important books, numerous pivotal articles, voluminous essays, reviews, talks, papers, and presentations. And all this, along with a lifetime of extraordinary teaching, exemplary service, supportive friendship, and generous colleagueship. But much as I would like to, I'm not going to attempt to trace the trajectory of Claudia's long and distinguished career. I only have 20 minutes after all. But I am going to talk for a moment about the indisputably pioneering work that she and Hazel and a handful of others, um, many of whom are here in this audience, undertook in the academy in the 1970s and 80s, trailblazing work that both inspired other women like me to join them and made it possible for us to do so. I got a bit of a rush the other day when a tall, dark, handsome, younger, but by no means young man um, <clears throat> went out of his way and rushed over to open a door for me. I thanked him, smiled up at him, and attempted to bat my eyes demurely. <laughs> he said, it's my pleasure. I have a mother, and I hope that someone would open the door for her. <laughs> this room is full of brilliant women who I think of as my teachers. But rest assured, the word foremother will never slip from my chaplets. <laughs> but I feel absolutely entitled to affix to these scholars adjectives such as pioneering and trailblazing. Because unlike Hazel's graduate students and junior colleagues, 
I'm old enough to remember when. That is, I've been around long enough to remember when there was no field. Moreover, I'm uniquely positioned to invoke the P word because while I stand among these pioneering women generationally, I am not of them experientially. Chronologically speaking, we are contemporaries. I even have a few years and many gray hairs on some of them. But I came of age as a literary critic considerably later than they did. I received the Academy's talking papers, the PhD, in 1991, a mere 10 years ago, by which time most of them were already full professors. The relative newness of my degree, however, is not to say that I was born yesterday. I actually taught my first college class nearly 30 years ago, way back in 1972. The difference between them and me, between the pioneers and the settlers, (laughs) is one of attitude and vision rather than time and space and even degree, their PhDs versus my MFA. I thought small back there in the 70s, where they saw large. Ah, but a woman's reach should exceed her grasp, or what's the Ivy League for? (laughs) I saw myself as a consumer and purveyor, a reader and teacher of other people's scholarship, while they saw themselves as part of a vibrant, as, as part of a vibrant, if largely unacknowledged, cultural and intellectual tradition. Out of that vision, they forged a new discipline that not only changed the course of literary studies, it also transformed the academy. But I remember when. I remember when all the blacks were men and all the women were white. If you studied or taught African-American women's literature in the late 1960s or early 70s, you did so, by and large, in a critical vacuum. Lost, languishing, and long out of print, the primary texts were hard enough to come by. The first few times that I taught Their Eyes Were Watching God, I made Xeroxed editions for my students from a single, tattered, much-read copy of the novel lent to me by Gail Jones, whom I had met in the creative writing program at Brown in 1971. There was, uh, there was a burgeoning body of criticism by black men on black men, Wright, Baldwin, Ellison, the boys, But there was little scholarship on African-American female writers that didn't effectively dismiss them as black versions of Hawthorne's scribbling women. I felt the lack keenly. I wandered for years in the critical wasteland, devouring novels old and new. um, Iola Leroy, Quicksand, Passing, Plumbun, Seraph on the Swanee, 
The Bluest Eye, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, Corregidora, Eva's Man, Sula, Song of Solomon, Midnight Birds, and Black-Eyed Susans. I scoured journals, searching for a word on the words, delighting in each rare but precious discovery. And I brought with me today one of those rare and precious discoveries, which I know many of you recognize, um, from Black World, August 1974, with a a groundbreaking article by Mary Helen Washington. It's one of my most prized possessions, and as you can see, it's much loved. I supplemented the little I found with my own close readings, my own definitive interpretations. But my literary criticism languished in my lecture notes, unread by anyone other than me, unheard by any ears other than those of the few students who actually managed to stay awake in class. I loved literature, I loved language. And even though in college and graduate school the first time around in the 70s, I loved writing and literature at least as much as I loved reading, I, who wanted desperately to write the great American novel to tell the story, didn't have the good sense to see that criticism, too, is an art. I didn't understand then what I see so clearly now, that in this privileged realm we inhabit, there is perhaps no greater gift than to be entrusted with the task of interpretation, to get to say what the story means. I was a late bloomer, but this was the first of many lessons that I learned from the deeply insightful, wonderfully creative, critical outpourings of Claudia Tate, Fran Foster, Mary Helen Washington, Nellie McKay, Barbara Johnson, Barbara Christian, Deborah McDowell, um, Mary, Mary, um, Mary Henderson, um, Mary Emma. The list is too long, and I'm afraid of, of leaving out key players, but I think you all know. Um, who I'm talking about. Um, this work happily began to appear in the mid to late 1970s. As I said earlier, Claudia has published several important volumes, and other panelists will be talking about some of her more recent work. Um, I want to repeat and elaborate on, uh, on something I wrote a while back about her first book, Black Women Writers at Work. In the early 1980s, this volume of interviews brought critical attention to a generation of African-American women of letters and to the developing field of black feminist criticism and theory. But to call this essential text a book of interviews or even conversations does not do its intellectual achievement justice. These are probing, insightful, intellectual exchanges between the nimblest of critics and 14 of the most important writers and thinkers of our time. What amazes me about this book every time I turn to it is not only the stunning meditations on race, writing, gender, history, and culture from the likes of Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Gail Jones, Shirley Ann Williams, and so on, but also the deeply probing questions and expositions of Claudia Tate, 
that make the book sing. I marvel at how much she knows, at the kinds and depths and breadths of knowledge her provocative queries reveal. Black Women Writers at Work is the best book of its kind, so much so, in fact, that it defies and redefines its own genre. At the time the book was published, Barbara Smith predicted that it would be, quote, useful for years to come. As its continued constant reference attest, Smith's prediction was right on the mark. The book remains a Bible for all of us committed, like Claudia, to studying and teaching the work of African-American women writers. For a field that was then very much in the process of defining itself, these conversations serve as intellectual consultations with the very subjects of the developing discourse. They not only take us inside the creative process as work, they also provide us with guidelines for doing our own jobs as critics. If we didn't know it before, what we learn from Claudia's conversation with Toni Morrison, for example, is that Morrison is not only a master storyteller, she is also an exquisite reader of text, a consummate critic, literary historian, and cultural theorist. Critics generally don't associate black people with ideas, she says. And then she goes on, of course, to demonstrate what a mistake that is. But if she points a knowing finger at white readers who insist upon treating black discourse as sociology, she doesn't let black critics off the hook either. I don't like most black criticism either, she says. Most criticism by blacks only responds to the impetus of the criticism we were all taught in college. It justifies itself by identifying black writers with some already accepted white writer. Morrison challenged us and our critical praxis to go into the work on its own terms. That is, to avoid the critical fallacy of, in her words, merely trying to place the book in an already established literary tradition. I hope it's not just self-delusion, but I would like to think that black feminist criticism has attempted to meet Morrison's challenge to break new ground. Certainly, through what Hazel aptly describes as her numerous acts of critical rebellion, Claudia has read the, led the charge into new territory. In the mid to late 80s, as many scholars became concerned over the incursions of post-structuralist theory into the sacred realm of African-American literary studies, Claudia went about the business of making these two discourses work with and through each other. In this regard, her scholarship was a model for me when I returned to graduate school in 1987 and set about trying to determine what kind of critic I was going to be. My own efforts to make peace with what Barbara Christian called the race for theory was greatly aided 
by two review essays that Claudia published in Tulsa Studies in Women's Literature in 1986 and 88 on black literary women and the evolution of critical discourse and reshuffling the deck or rereading race and gender in black women's writing. Even as the field was becoming preoccupied with and bogged down in debates over practice versus theory, Claudia cut to the chase. One thing is certain, she wrote in the first of these two review essays, the critical practice for black literature cannot continue to develop if its critics routinely dismiss new strategies out of hand not to pose new questions for the critical enterprise, she added, guarantees the production of a criticism of repetition in which repetition does not produce discerning differences but only zealously reinvents the proverbial wheel. In the second essay, Reshuffling the Deck, Claudia took a similarly no-nonsense approach to the nagging question of who can be a feminist critic. Um, let me quote her directly here. How am I doing on time? Do I have okay. Black feminist criticism acknowledges black women's collective space in history, their experiences and desires. In short, their subjectivity constitutes its own material culture its own signifying systems, and its own principles of beauty, value, and social exchange. Thus, black female culture is not mysterious and unknowable, an exotic territory inevitably foreign to all those who are not black and female. To the contrary, its epistemology is accessible to those who choose to learn as well as practice its tenants. That said, Claudia goes on um, to take us inside the more critical questions that she says lie at the heart of this critical exchange. Can we cross the double cross of racial and sexual differences at the very site of deconstructing white male privilege? And second, if black female subjectivity is structured as forms of textual authority, then is this subjectivity universally accessible to all who seek it? In short, can it be epistemologically codified without being reductive, and can others become proficient speakers for this idiom? She goes on in the essay to demonstrate how four new books, one of which um, is Hazel's Reconstructing Womanhood, negotiate this terrain. And then, of course, in her own readings of 19th century female narratives, she shows us precisely how to pull this off, how to reconstruct black female subjectivity at a time when deconstruction has decented the author's authority and dismantled the notion of unified subjectivity as a textual construct. Since I fear I'm running short of time, I won't rehearse the particulars that we all know and admire. 
Suffice it to say that in essays like Allegories of Black Female Desire, which appeared in Changing One's Own Words in 1989, and in her 1992 study, Domestic Allegories of Political Desire, Claudia shows us what the black daughter was really up to in the 19th century, and it wasn't departing. The work that Claudia and other feminist critics in this room have done in building a field is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is often described as revisionary. I want to end by correcting the historical record. This work was not revisionary. It was, is, and forever will be visionary. At the risk of playing to her worst fears and enhancing Hazel's anxiety, you all are on the shelf. You're on shelves across the country and throughout the world. That's the point. But have no fear. You never are allowed to sit long enough to collect dust. If I weren't traveling light, I would have brought your dog-eared, much-read, much-marked volumes with me to prove my point. You built a field and transformed the academy. I came into this field formally ten years ago, feeling like a come-lately, an interloper. And you have welcomed me with open arms and unyielding generosity. I feel proud, honored, and privileged to stand among you. Claudia says in the introduction to black women writers at work that, quote, the book builds literary foundations on the notions of linkage. Linkage. Well, my pioneering friends, you are the strongest link. I don't know if you heard me, but I said thank you very much for being here, and I thank the people who planned this occasion, and I was surprised that my son came, my youngest son, who's right there. You remember Jay. He used to have braids. You remember that? So it was a surprise. I didn't know he was coming from Washington. And I all, Reed just got a job, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. 
he's been out, you know, between the twin, twin towers collapse and all the to do in New York, uh, it's been a struggle. But he called me today and said he got a job. So we're very happy. My brother, where is he? And his fiance, Kimberly, as Harold Tate. My parents, Harold and Mary Tate, who taken care of me for a year and a half. And again, thank all of you for coming. We have time for a few questions. Yes. Mary Helen, could you stand up, please? Thank you. She can see the film. she can see the video. <laughs> Mary Emma. finished now. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. What happens when you are a 19th century person operating in a 20th century world? Um, 
Claudia led me there to understand that. And, and so that got me. I, mean, I was stuck for about a year and a half, and that's what that book helped me again. So I just want to just give that book a, a heads up because it just gives us, uh, for people who are you know starting research projects, graduate students, younger scholars who really need to know how to shape and frame uh, and, and get greater clarity, that book, in, in my mind, just really does the trick. So keep going back to it over and over again. And thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Yes, it, it's a gift that keeps on giving, I think is the, the way I think of that. Thank you. I feel like I could maybe yell instead of using the no. Use the mic. Okay, thank you, Val. All right. I wanted to thank you all um, for starting out the day so wonderfully and so beautifully. And um, I was really struck by kinds of um, these questions of inter- intergenerational politics within black feminist studies and black, black feminist critical studies. Um, and so I guess I'm asking this question. Um, I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about what you all see as being some of the major obstacles um, you know, in the dialogue, to create and sustain a dialogue that's intergenerational within black feminist studies. I'm thinking, for instance, of how um, with the the conflict between Kara Walker and Betty Zarr, for instance, I felt a deep frustration as someone who I guess could be aligned generationally with Kara Walker at her inability to kind of um, complicate her generational politics and her um, dialogue with Betty Zarr. And so I'm just wondering if we might be able to discuss that or get your thoughts on that some more. Um. Could, could you maybe just say a little bit more about that exchange, please? <laughs> um, in regards to the Kara Walker-Betty Zarr conflict, um, Betty Zarr, of course, many of you are probably familiar with this, but um, Betty Zarr was um, quite concerned about um, Kara Walker's um, silhouettes and whether or not they reinforced these kinds of, um, you know, the reification of the black female body, the objection of um, black female sexuality. Um, and I saw Kara Walker... Um, and, and really actually find her work very engaging. But I saw her give several talks where she seemed to kind of disregard um, engaging in a more complicated discussion with Betty Zarr's kind of socio-historical context and her position as an artist. Now, these are artists, so I don't want to conflate, right, um, you know, um, the, the discourses within black feminist thought and um, the black aesthetic circles that I'm referring to. But I'm just wondering... Um, I saw that as being an obstacle in terms of um, coming up with some kind of um, prolific um, kind of coalition um, between these two generations of very exciting artists. And so I'm just wondering if we see that maybe in black feminist theoretical circles at all right now. Um, When I first, when I raised the question of generations, I actually wasn't meaning to raise it in the context of conflict. I haven't actually experienced that that is what is happening. I mean, I don't believe or train graduate students to be uncritically accepting of everything that has gone before. I mean, I think that is precisely not what they should be doing. I think the question I was trying to, to get at is that particularly the issue of sort of being foremothers named and then positioned somewhere is not necessarily critically engaging with the history. 
And it's the critical engagement with the history of the formation of our field that I think is a question that needs to be taken very, very seriously. I mean, in fact, I believe that about all fields should critically engage um, their history, their formation, um, exactly why the debates took place and took the shape uh, that they that they did. So I wasn't I wasn't trying to imply that there was a, a, a conflict there, but really that the task of history was not fully understood if you just revered, placed on the shelf and dusted off every now and then. Susan. Actually, Susan, wait for the mic, please. Where do you think black feminist criticism is going, or where do you think it ought to go in the future? You're looking at me? (laughs) I was just being... I mean... (laughs) Well, um, you know, I don't have an answer, so I'd actually um, be very anxious to hear what what other people have to say. Um, I guess, you know, in many many moments I feel out of the loop, um, but I I do have a sense of being being stalled um, to a certain extent. So I'm anxious to hear what other people have to say. I mean, I think its horizon should be unlimited, frankly. Um, I don't think we should limit ourselves. I don't think we should allow ourselves to be limited by others. I mean, I think we should, I don't know, go global, if you like, in that sense. I mean, I know particularly when I was still trying to work within English departments, um, that I was told um, very curtly that I didn't know what I was talking about and I should shut up if I talked about any writer who wasn't black and female. Um, And I think from that point of view that the the methodologies we've invented, the ways of looking, uh, the visions... (laughs) that um, Anne has talked about should be applied to anyone and to anything. And I think if I want to pass anything on to my students is that they should not feel that they're limited in any way. Yes. Uh, Please wait for the mic. Hi, um, my name is Trinika Greer. I'm here from Howard University. And my question is, well, first of all, the use of the term black feminism is one that has always perplexed me. And with that in mind, is there, are the terms black feminism and womanism synonymous terms? And if there is a distinction, um, can you detail for us some of the distinctions between the two? Um, I think for Alice Walker when she wrote the essay uh, on womanism there was a clear distinction that she was trying to make but you'd actually have to ask her (laughs) really um, about about that 
Um, for me, um, the feminist project has always been, you know, intensely political as well as as critical. Um, and it is, I realize I was talking the other day to my undergraduates. I've been teaching a seminar on um, race and gender and sexuality and everything we've read have been by black women or at least women who would fall under the category in the United States of being women of color. And it was literally the next to the last class before we had that conversation what is feminism? Well, they were asking each other in class, would you call yourself, you know, a feminist or whatever? And it was, it was a very interesting but also incredibly multiple and diverse set of responses. But in general, they all felt, in terms of their own generation, that there were a lot of difficulties for themselves today in terms of calling themselves a feminist. They often felt under attack by their peers, both male and female. Um, and it was really, I think, when I was sort of listening to them, how, I don't know, so many of them were sort of mistaken or didn't, know or didn't understand what the history of feminism was about, um, how it related to the question of, uh, you know, of women's movements all over the world, not just in, in the U.S., um, about, you know, their fight um, to have a say in the conditions of their own work and their domestic and public sphere and, and, and everything that, uh, that that meant. So, we instantly, we really started to talk about what that history was that, that they didn't, that they didn't know. Um, and so that's in a way why I feel that it's important to turn to the question, you know, of history. And, and my response, I think, to you would be, um, find out why, why that term was invented, what it was about. What, what the political battles were that people were, were trying, you know, to face. Because I think that, that now too many take for granted, I don't know, that there are courses on black women's fiction or, there are, you know, that they have, they feel they have equality or whatever it is. All those uh, were struggled for. All those were, were, all those things were fought for. Um, and I think they just can't be accepted as if they always existed. Yes, I, I agree. And I, I think that um, to a certain extent, this is related to the issue of, of generations, um, which I agree um, need not be viewed in terms of conflict, um, but needs to be viewed in terms of dialogue and exchange. Um, the issue seems to me much broader than black feminist criticism 
and theory. It's something that I think we are confronted with um, as academics across the board, whether we're historians or literary scholars, um, in terms of working with and training subsequent generations and the kinds of knowledge um, that are available. My generation, um, this generation, is the last to have a particular first-hand kind of knowledge of being told to go to the back of the bus. I mean, there are ways in which we are all still told to go to, to the back of the bus. But to have that literal experience. Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you get that? Um, can you get it from books? I think the real, there's a real issue about knowing uh, history. Um, you know, as Hazel said, the politics behind the term. Um, womanism is for me very much Alice Walker's term. Um, feminism is the term that I claim, but I claim it, I like to think, with a sense of the history of that term. And it's because of that history that um, it's important for me to call myself a feminist. But because on the surface, I think, it may seem that we live in a different world that's post-feminist, post-affirmative action, um, these, these things would seem to be less important. Uh, yes. One. If I'm not mistaken, I'm Barbara Griffin from Howard University. Don't you address that question in skin trade in your chapter, The Occult of True Womanhood, that this young lady raised? I mean, it sounds like something she should read. <laughs> so I want to recommend it. I think you, I think you take care of that question. Thank, thank okay. you. But I think a lot of us have, have addressed that, mm -hmm. that question yes. because I, I want to thank refer the, her thank to that. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lisa Wolfork. I'm a new assistant professor at University of Virginia, and I am guilty of the idol worship that you um, all debunk here, since I review your work and talk about it all the time and aspire to where you are today. But I want to ask the question, um, based on the history of the black women's feminist theory movement as it evolved in the 1970s with your work, is that history, does it demonstrate a form of maybe that's antithetical to a hero worship or in, because as Dr. Carby said that, you know, you have to really interrogate the history. And once you place foremothers on a shelf or revere them in certain ways, that that is in some ways a historical. Would you suggest in that the work that was done would somehow, you know, lean against that? I mean, I just want to know what I'm doing wrong, you know. <laughs> Um, let me say that, um, as I, I, I tried to suggest in my remarks, I think that if you're, if you're reading the work and drawing on it, then you're not doing something wrong because you're not, um, you know, placing these scholars and their work um, on the shelf. You're take, they're on the shelf, but you're taking them off, off the shelf and using that work. And um, it's that kind of, 
you know, for me as a as someone who came after, um, I, I like to think that there's there was this um, amazing solid foundation, and it's reading their work that made me feel planted and oriented, um, and that's the step that I would encourage the next uh, generation to take. I didn't mean to say that you were doing anything wrong. I think we have time I for... Think, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hazel. Oh, no, it's okay. I, don't, I mean, I think what I, was, what I was trying to do is really to say that we need to think about what we need to tell you that we haven't told you. Um, that you have our books and articles that you can that you read and that is wonderful because the work is still living but really I was trying to say that we should follow perhaps um, you know Claudia's lead in asking that question about work and maybe we should tell you some of the stories about the conditions of work out of which that work came so it was more that it was our responsibility perhaps to start telling you stories that we hadn't told you. And if I could just add, the other part of that, I think, is that we also need to listen. You know, I said a few moments ago that I, I felt rather personally stalled. Um, but last night um, at dinner in the company of a group of young scholars just listening to them talk, um, you know, what was amazingly uplifting for me. It made, you know, it made things start happening. The cobwebs, you know, started to work. Um, so we need, we need to listen. Um, we need to be engaged in an ongoing dialogue. I think we have time for one more question. Is there some, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Okay. Thank you so much for your talks. Can you please say a little bit more about this feeling of being stalled and what the implications are at this time, particularly with respect to your experience in a time when I, we were all a little younger teaching in the, when there was a movement going on, a mass movement, both a black movement and a woman's movement. Um, white supremacy certainly hasn't stalled and male supremacy certainly hasn't stalled. But it's something that I've heard uh, many scholars talk about throughout the late 90s is that uh, similar kind of feeling of uh, uh, kind of a disconnect um, with uh, political opposition, you know, direct political opposition. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts about that. Well, for me, you know, I guess I take it as a, a kind of personal, um, personal thing um, in not knowing um, exactly where to go next in, in, in my own work. Um, and that's very different from the experience of coming out of graduate school where everything is fresh and, and new. It's in part the difference that when I was a graduate student and I see one of my, um, one of my chums from those days, Linda Grasso, in the back, so I'm feeling quite nostalgic. Um, but, you know, part of being a graduate student is having this, it doesn't necessarily seem this way at the time, but the wonderful luxury to read. Okay. Um, you know, 
I mean, you can't afford to buy the books, okay? And then you, you get to be a professor, and maybe you can half afford to buy the books, but you don't have the time to read them. I remember a day when I couldn't wait for the various um, uh, catalogs to come for the presses and circle everything. And I remember very well, and I've told this story before, but it's absolutely true, um, that um, I, I was almost killed because of Hazel. Um, you know, I, I was in graduate school and I had ordered her book and I would go to the bookstore daily um, waiting for its arrival and finally it, it arrived and I was walking home down Brown Street in Providence reading the book instead of watching the traffic and was nearly run over. Um, but that ability, that time to read um, is, is a great luxury. But it's also very much about politics, and it's about the political situation. It's the fix we're in. It's the sense of having said certain kinds of things, but being in a moment where they seem to need to be said again, at the same time that I'm not convinced that anybody really wants to, to, to hear them. Um, for example, in the wake of, of September 11th, um, we are, we have been thrust into a moment where um, we have nationally sanctioned racial profiling. But to make that point um, is a dangerous act, you know, an act of treason. And that's not at all to suggest that we shouldn't say it. I think, in fact, we need to um, we need to say it more emphatically. We need to do something about it. Um, the thousands of people who are being um, rounded up and held um, incommunicado, um, you know, in the name of of uh, patriotism and justice. Okay. Um, but to, to offer a critique um, is to, um, at the very least, uh, speak against your country. How do you, what's the next step? How do you work through this? Um, it makes, you know, it, in some ways, everything seem like rhetoric. I don't know the language. I don't know the instrument. I mean, I could use Barbie dolls to make a particular point, um, but I don't know what to use here. I mean, G.I. Joe just doesn't seem to, to cut it. Okay, but that's the, that's the way. Could I, could I add something to that question about being stalled, too, which is in addition to everything you know, that Anne has said, I would also sort of point to the fact she's directing, right, African-American studies, I have lots of male colleagues who aren't stalled. Um, if they're asked to do administrative stuff, they immediately adopt a position of sort of professional incompetence and, and not knowing how to administer anything. Um, if you actually look at who sort of serves on committees, because nowadays you're supposed to have someone of color and a woman on every committee. Well, if you only have a handful of senior women faculty, who does it? Because if you get one of them, then you're saved both ways. I actually think that we need to think about the relation between building these, these programs, these departments, employing a whole other generation, getting it reviewed, 
getting that generation tenure, um, you know, building the graduate programs, but building a whole institutional presence mm-hmm. does not give you the time to think and to read when it's basically all falling on a few shoulders. And the next generation coming through needs to know that. You know, that's right. I mean, it's not just a sense of being stalled. It's a sense of being weary. Um, Thank you, no. (laughs) And and, and not having having time, as as, uh, one person said so well, even to take care of normal bodily functions. Um, A few years ago, I, I got a call from um, a young woman, a graduate student at NYU, who said that she was organizing a conference, uh, organizing a panel for a conference, and she wanted me to serve on the panel, along with, and she named several um, luminary black male scholars. And I said, and me? <laughs> I said, you know, is this some kind of setup? What is this? You know, where where are the women? And she said, Well, you know, we're um, we're kind of um, it's, it's kind of last minute, and we really wanted to have um, more black women on the panel. We wanted to have um, a balanced panel, but when we call the men, they all have secretaries to make arrangements for them. When we call the women, all they have is voicemail, and I could see perhaps the next project. All the men have secretaries. All the women have voicemail. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. On that note, I'm going to have to um, ask you to join me in thanking our panelists and take a break.